0: Minus 15.
1: Respect all, fear none.
0: Into the upper deck.
2: Intensity is not a perfume. Oh
1: my
0: goodness. Five, four, three, two, one.
1: From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you amidst a nine-game win streak. The Baltimore Orioles are 44-44 and 44 following last night's win over the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. And as we speak, Brendan, the Orioles are not only the best team in baseball. The best team in baseball, right. as of right now, of course, but... Uh, since the uh, slim slight sarcasm there, of course. They are certainly, without a doubt, the hottest team in all of baseball. They've won nine in a row for the first time since 1999. They are at 500, the latest in the season in at least the last five years. And they are playing some exciting,
2: thrilling, enjoyable baseball right now. Yeah, a couple of walk-offs thrown in in this nine-game winning streak. They have a chance for 10 tonight against a Cubs team that has not been very good this season, we saw the Orioles come back from another deficit yesterday to win their ninth game in a row. As you mentioned, first time since 1999 that they have won nine straight games. It's really exciting. I mean, they are 500 at 44 and 44. They are two games back of a wild card spot, which is two games back behind the Toronto Blue Jays, which is incredibly surprising given the amount of talent that is on the Blue Jays roster. They are only three games behind the Boston Red Sox. They are keeping up in a division where there is literally right now not a team with a losing record. Yep. Every single team
1: has a 500 record or above, and the Orioles are fifth. They're fifth in this division. In many other divisions around baseball, they would be fourth or maybe even third, but it just stinks that they are in quite literally the best division in all of baseball. But the fact that they are within striking distance of the wild card speaks to just how remarkable this stretch has been. And I know it's easy to point to Adley Rutschman and say that he is really the thing that changed and the catalyst that turned this ball club around. It's not just him, obviously. It's been a lot of other factors, but he has certainly infused this team with an exciting leadership, a brand of leadership, I think you could say. And he has captured the attention of, Baltimore fans, and this team has deservedly yeah. captured the attention of Baltimore fans. At Wrigley Field yesterday, there was a pretty loud and sizable contingent of Orioles fans that was making noise near the end of that game. I mean, this team is going to be potentially, they're going to be right around 500, no matter how these four games go before the All-Star break. They're going to be close to 500, even if they lose out, going into the All-Star break, and then they're coming home for a home series. They just had an outstanding series
2: at home over the weekend in which they drew record crowds. Yeah, the crowds were awesome. I mean, I know a lot of it was the promotions, but if that can continue into July with some winning Orioles baseball here, I don't think you can understate just how important that is for the players. And the fact that the Orioles won those games, a few
1: of them in exciting fashion, helps because you're getting twenty eight, thirty thousand 30,000 fans in the stadium and they're seeing a win and they're experiencing how fun that can be so they want to come back I mean the the fans when they go to a game and they have a great time and they have beautiful weather like they did and they have wins they're going to want to come back and the hope is that they come back in droves in July and August because this team has been deserving of our attention they have been so fun to watch over the last few weeks it's Remarkable. I know five hundred. We're not hanging any banners. We're not going at, out and, like we you said at the beginning of the podcast, calling them the best team in all of baseball. Obviously, well, <laughs> but the point is that they are much better right now than anybody thought that they were. Even the most bullish prognosticators would not say that the Orioles would be five hundred at this point in the season and be within striking distance of a wild card spot.
2: No, I think at the beginning of the year, Fangraphs was doing their playoff odds and they gave the orioles a zero point zero percent chance to make the playoffs at their playoff percentage is not particularly high at the moment 2. i think 2. it's just 2.2 percent but there's a chance now and yeah like you said paul they are just consistently overperforming throughout the last month or so of the season i think if you were to point out and say, okay, there's one guy that's made the difference. I guess you would point to Adley Rutschman because he is the obvious thing that has changed, and the Orioles have had a great record since he was called up from AAA Norfolk. And you can see the leadership. You can see how he acts with pitchers after half innings, and it looks like it's infectious. So maybe you can point to the Adley Rutschman effect and say, he's made a big difference. But I think, honestly, Paul, the most exciting part about this is that there hasn't been a particular player that is having an MVP caliber season. If you want to look at just this winning streak, I mean, Ramon Arias has been hitting like 415 over his last eight games. That's a player you can point to over this winning streak and say, okay, he's been awesome. But outside of that, if you're looking at the season as a whole and what has gotten them to this 44-44 and record, there's no one singular player leading the way.
1: No. And it's no player who's out to an MVP caliber season. I think at this point last year, you were looking at Cedric Mullins on his way to the first ever 30-30 season in Orioles history. And you were saying, that's amazing. It's remarkable that he's doing this. But we're probably never going to see a 30-30 season from Cedric Mullins ever again. We're probably not going to see him maybe even hit 30 home runs in a season ever again. We knew at the time, that it was going to be a career year. And he was, it was going to be nearly impossible to repeat that kind of production because it's impo- nearly impossible for any player in baseball, let alone Mike Trout, or you know, even Mike Trout, to produce that kind of uh, home run and stolen base production. The Orioles are not getting that kind of MVP caliber season from anybody. They're not having a starter in the All-Star game like they did in Mullins last year. They're just having the guys in their system, on their team perform better than they have. That's all they're getting, and they're getting it across the board. None of these seasons that they're getting are way a deviation off of their career norms. They're the better seasons, maybe career so far, but it's not like they're putting up production that we didn't think was possible right before this season i mean ryan mountcastle right now has a 792 ops with 14 homers i don't think
2: that's an outlier season no it's, mountcastle. A, it's a good season from ryan mountcastle and you're happy with the development that you've seen from him but it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility by any means no because he hit 30 plus homers last year 33 right. cedric mullins 714
1: OPS, 2.6 baseball reference WAR. This is, if anything, a down year for Cedric Mullins after last year. Vess is not an outlier season on the positive end. Anthony Santander, 751 OPS, 1.1 war, not an outlier season from him. Trey Mancini, 775 OPS, 2.0 baseball reference war, not an outlier season for Trey Mancini either. So, Yes, we're getting good production from the players, but we're not getting somebody who is putting up such ridiculous numbers that you don't think this is repeatable. It's within the realm of possibility that these Orioles, the ones that I listed and other guys who are performing well, continue to perform at the level that they have been through the first three
2: months of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, there are probably two surprising seasons that I would look at. The first one being Tyler Wells just because we didn't know how he was going to translate to the rotation. And Tyler Wells has been absolutely excellent. And the second one is Jorge Lopez. The Orioles have finally had this year a consistent closer. And yes, while that is a big deal, and it's huge for Brandon Hyde to have somebody to turn to like Jorge Lopez, he's not making you a 500 team on his own. No, Neither is Tyler Wells. It is a complete group effort. And I think the important thing to point out, We will get to the questions of what does this mean for the trade deadline? What does it mean going forward? I think one of the most encouraging things about this team right now is that the players that you're looking at that have had quality seasons, there are guys that might get dealt at the deadline who aren't as controllable, like Trey Mancini and Anthony Santander. But as a whole, a lot of the players who are stepping up and having fantastic seasons are controllable for years down the line. Yeah. Are going to be on this team for a while. Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, Ryan Mountcastle, Tyler Wells. I mean, so many of these guys that have had good seasons are going to be here. They are going to be fixtures in the lineup. Tyler Wells is going to be either a fixture in the rotation or the bullpen. He's going to be somewhere. Yeah. And these are guys that you think are going to be with you when the Orioles are winning more baseball games over the next few years. And
1: we've talked about this before in the podcast, but the fact that these are not rookies who are just getting their first taste of baseball, of, of big league baseball, these are guys who have been on this team for several years, who have been in Baltimore, like Austin Hayes, like Cedric Mullins, like Tyler Wells, who have been here for at least two years for each of those three guys, and now they're experiencing success. So you believe in the coaching staff's ability to develop these players, and also the best and strongest horses are yet to come right you still have a Grayson Rodriguez a DL Hall a Colton Kowser, a Heston Kerstad Gunnar Henderson, uh, Henderson Kyle Stowers Jordan Westberg you go
2: down the list
1: you still have those guys who are yet to debut and I think for people for outside maybe national media or baseball fans in general who are just look at the Orioles record They see Adley Rutschman is on the team and he's producing pretty well and they think oh surely this is a team that is getting these great performances from these rookies and that's what's been the change. No this is a lot of there there has not been a lot of turnover from last year to this year. In terms of starting positions across the diamond very little turnover. I mean Jorge Mateo joined the team late last season. He's been their everyday shortstop this season but a Returning player from last year. You obviously have Rugnet Odor as an addition to this team, but left, center, center, or sorry, left field, center, and right are all returning players. Tyler Wells in a different role, but he's a returning player. So you're getting so many guys who have been on this team and are experiencing breakout seasons with their best and brightest prospects. Still yet to come. I think that's certainly a reason to be excited as
2: well. Yeah, absolutely. And Bill on Facebook makes a good point that it's a lot of small things coming together for a complete game. Yes. We aren't seeing a spectacular facet over this winning streak. The pitching has been very good. Five of these nine wins, the Orioles have allowed two runs or fewer. But that's a combination of a starting rotation that is giving you five, six, maybe Jordan Lyle's case, seven innings. And then you're handing it off to a bullpen that has been really, really good this year. The lineup has been solid. It seems like, Paul, a lot of these games, they're allowing two or three runs a game, and they're just scoring four or five. Well, and the bullpen is locking it down. Right. I mean, the offense hasn't been awesome. The pitching has been great. It's just a combination of a lot of players playing well. And we haven't really seen the complete picture from this Orioles team over the last few years where every facet is just working in the way that you need it to and it's been working recently. And when you look
1: forward to what this team can do after the break, after the trade deadline, even in the last couple months of the season, I think it's fair to expect some kind of regression. I don't expect the Orioles to finish 500. Then again, I didn't expect them to be 500 by mid-July before the season, so you never know. But if this team goes as many would predict, they're probably not going to finish at 500. This win streak will eventually, as we know, come to an end, probably not going to hit the 20 games that the Oakland A's did back in 2003. So this will eventually probably come back down to earth, but it's not going to be because of any one player suddenly falling flat. It's going to be some slight regression, perhaps, from all of these guys because they're stu- it's still a young group still a very young group of players who could experience dips in their early careers where they have to make adjustments like an Adley Rutchman. maybe teams will start to figure out how to pitch to him better and he stops hitting a million a million doubles a game. Maybe you have teams that figure out a hole in Ryan Mowcastle's swing and he takes a dip offensively. Young teams, it's very hard to get young teams to win over the course of a six month season. That's why veteran teams typically are the ones that last until the end of September and get into October. But that doesn't mean that we should not be excited right now about the fact that they are way ahead of where they should be. And no matter how these last couple months go to get to this point with a 500 record on a nine game winning streak is an accomplishment. But I will
2: say, Paul, even though it's a young team I feel like we've talked about over the last few years wanting to get younger guys opportunities and maybe how the Orioles not being as competitive and not winning as many games gives some players a chance here that wouldn't have had as much of a chance on another team. Cedric Mullins is a prime example of somebody who struggled to the point where they had to send him back down to double a buoy. A team that's probably more competitive over the last few years doesn't give Cedric Mullins a chance to come back and start in center field. The Orioles presented him with that opportunity because they haven't been a competitive team over the last few years. So the Orioles go from being able to give players those kinds of opportunities to now seeing the fruits of that. Because a Cedric Mullins, he's gotten his chances. He's kind of a younger veteran at this point because you threw him into the fire a little bit early probably a little bit before he was ready to be a big contributor at the major league level. And now we're seeing him really blossom into a quality center fielder. And that only happens because he was given the opportunities when the Orioles weren't winning that many ballgames.
1: And I think going forward, the question is going to be how many opportunities are going to be there for players like Cedric Mullins over the last couple months of the season and going into 2023, because they will clear the deck, and they will clear as much roster space as they need to for Grayson Rodriguez, for D.L. Hall, for Jordan Westberg, for Gunnar Henderson, maybe for Colton Cowser. They will make sure that those guys get their extended opportunities. But for the guys that are a little bit further down the prospect rankings, the guys that are in the 15 to 30 range in the prospect rankings, or even maybe just off the, the top 30 in terms of MLB pipeline, guys like a Drew Rahm, guys like... Uh, Maybe not a Heston Kerstad, he's too high up. Maybe a John Rhodes down in Aberdeen. These guys that are near the bottom of the prospect rankings, this roster now is taking shape with everyday contributors going forward. There are not going to be as many opportunities for guys like Cedric Mullins to get up to the big leagues and struggle and then fall out of competition. If a guy comes up to the big leagues and struggles on this team going forward, Unfortunately, they may have
2: a quicker hook than they would have in 2020 or 2019. But that's what you wanted. This is what the process was for. Exactly. You found the guys that worked through their struggles at the major league level that have carved out everyday roles. Cedric Mullins has done that. Austin Hayes, at least this year, has seemed to get over the injury bug for a while here. He has carved out a role. Austin Hayes is now your everyday left fielder, right fielder, whatever you need him to be. Ryan Mountcastle, has struggled a little bit, but has seemed to really develop. He looks like your first baseman of the future. We're seeing kind of the weeding out process work, and yeah. we're going to see more guys come up. I mean, you look at the infield especially, we're going to see Jordan Westberg eventually, Gunnar Henderson eventually, Kobe Mayo eventually. But who knows if somebody like a Ramon Rios can stick around. He's been right. playing some fantastic baseball lately. A Jorge Mateo. What can he provide for you? Even if it's off the bench, is it defensive replacement, whatever it might be. This is the much more exciting time for that roster crunch because you're starting to see guys really take charge and command a position for the next few
1: years. It's a mantra that this Orioles front office and development system has preached a lot over the last few years that the rising tide raises all boats and we're seeing that. We're seeing not just the Adley Rutschman's come up and succeed, but we're seeing the attitude, the energy and the high production value of somebody like an Adley Rutschman or a Tyler Wells or somebody young like that an Austin Hayes' Cedric Mullins raising the boats around him, raising the level of competition within the team itself. And that's what you hope to have because competition brings out the best um, in real competitors, in everybody. So the hope is that they take the challenge, and the players who are destined to stick on this team will take that challenge. I think the question going forward in the immediate future, Brendan, is how this win streak and this 500 record will affect the Orioles' plans as we go closer and closer to the trade deadline. We've heard some speculation that they might be both buyers and sellers. I saw, I believe, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic make that suggestion. What I will say, I don't know what Michael Elias is planning elsewhere in the warehouse right now, but what I will say is that I believe Michael Elias is going to
2: stick th- to this plan and see it through. I don't think it changes the plan, but I do think the first half of the season has to modify it a little bit. It's not going to change the plan because the, the blueprint is still, call up your top prospects. They are going to be the anchors, and you're going to build around them. So when you're looking at a player like Trey Mancini or Anthony Santander, Kyle Stowers seems to be the type of prospect that the Orioles believe can be an anchor for this team, can be an everyday starter. So you are more than likely not going to hold on to a Trey Mancini or an Anthony Santander who are not under team control for a long time, and they are going to be preventing somebody like Kyle Stowers from getting at-bats. So maybe, I don't think it changes the plan at the deadline for a guy like Mancini or Santander, or even a Jordan Lyles or a bullpen arm. I still think it's very possible that the Orioles trade those types of guys. But I do think it modifies the plan a little bit, because the rebuild is pretty clearly ahead of schedule. Who knows? Maybe this was the plan. Maybe Michael Elias just knew that this was going to be the year where the Orioles would finally see some, some turnaround at the Major League level in the win column. I think it modifies it a little bit because at the trade deadline, I think there's a potential for the Orioles to look at some players that have control over the next few years. Names like Luis Castillo and Blake Snell have gotten tossed out. I don't know how realistic those possibilities are because they have big numbers on that contract, but it could be a Jose Barrios to the Blue Jays situation where you make a deal at the deadline knowing that they have a year of control after that deadline year, and then maybe you use that extra year of control to try to re-sign them longer term. Yeah, I think as we get
1: closer to the trade deadline, we'll probably delve more into the specific names, I think. I think you threw out a couple interesting ones there. I think you can't just look at 2023. I think you have to also look at, can this guy contribute to our team in 2023 and 2024? I think you were looking for as much control as possible. And when you're looking at what you could give up for somebody like that, you're not looking at one of your blue chip prospects by any stretch. Now, maybe you make a trade with one of your bottom end of the top 30 prospects, but even then, I think that those guys still are too valuable and you've invested so much and building this system that why take away from that depth now when yes, this team is playing 500 baseball, but they're not going to win the division. They're still only, like we said, according to fan graphs, not to rain on anybody's parade, but have a 2.2% chance of making the playoffs. And even if you do make the playoffs, which probably is not going to happen, you'd be a pretty quick out odds are because you're going up against teams that are frankly more loaded roster wise than you are. So, You don't want to make a short-term move, and I don't think Mike Elias will. But if you're looking to add talent that is closer to Major League Ready than you have in years past, then I think you look for very controllable guys. And then guys that you could trade, I think you're looking more at guys who have already made their debuts. Maybe somebody like a Tyler Nevin or somebody that, maybe even Jorge Mateo. I don't think he's probably likely to get traded, but some guys who have already made their debuts, you kind of have an idea of who they are as a player. You want to get a better look at somebody who's behind them in the system. And you think that you can get a player who can upgrade your roster. Those are the kind of players, if they do end up buying that, I think
2: that they would target. It depends on the name. I could see the Orioles. I don't think they go inside their top 10 prospects. I've seen Jordan Westberg's name get thrown out in potential trades I don't think Michael Elias goes there unless it's for a huge name. Yeah, which I don't think the Orioles are going to do. I could see them delving just outside the top ten, maybe a name like a Connor Norby. I don't think Michael Elias goes there quite yet either. But the bottom, goodness, the bottom line, Paul, like you said, is that I don't think they're buying at the deadline with any intent of making a playoff push. This season, right? If they make a playoff push this season with the roster that they have, awesome. Uh, that's just icing on the cake at that point. But you're not building the roster for this season. You're building the roster for two years, for next year, two years, three years down the road when you have the support of guys like Grayson Rodriguez, DL Hall. I, again, we can run down the list as many times as we want here. That's what the roster is being built for. And that's why I think if they do make a win-now trade or
1: or a trade that is for a big league player who is contributing right away, I don't think the trade deadline is the time to do it because trade deadlines are when teams get desperate and they end up shelling out more prospects than they should for players to contribute in the short term. And the team that is trading the big league player is saying, hey, I'm not just giving up years of control in 2023 and 2024. I'm also giving you two great months in 2022. Right. And if the Orioles are not prioritizing those two great months, like you said, they probably shouldn't be, they're looking at 2023 and 2024. Why not wait to make that trade until the offseason? Until you're not paying for those last two months. Until you can maybe get them a little bit cheaper because teams are not quite as desperate as they are right now and the prices are not as inflated as they are right now.
2: Well, that's true, I do also think there's something to be said for Michael Elias and company wanting to show fans and, and players even that they're ready. They're ready to start making a push towards the playoffs. Maybe it's not this season. Maybe this is not the year where they're really just like on people's heels in the AL East. But I think there is something to be said for wanting to get closer and closer to that point this season. Not to the point where you're not going to move players that make sense to move, like a Trey Mancini or an Anthony Santander, but maybe to the point where if you are looking at acquiring a player for the long term, you take those two months at this trade deadline as well, because while making the playoffs this year isn't under prime consideration, you want to show that you've got it in the tank and that this is the year where things are really starting to turn that corner.
1: And I think that the question will also become after the trade deadline and as we get into the offseason is a trade the best way to acquire that talent? Is a free agent the best way to acquire that talent? Free agent is awfully nice because you're not giving up anything, you're just handing somebody a contract. But you have to pay him oftentimes more than you would if you're absorbing his salary via trade. So, interesting conversations to have. And it's exciting that we're talking about the Orioles moving into phase two of this rebuild. Like, they could be a lot sooner than any of us thought, I right. think. Uh, one guy we should talk about. Now, we are going to get to Brad Selick, who's the Orioles director of, of draft operations, because we are just days away from the number one overall pick. Yeah, that's, I mean, really top of the on top exciting of
2: the part about this streak and the, the Orioles 500 record as to this point. They have this record right now at the major league level. Adley Rutschman, the former number one overall prospect. They have the number four and number five overall prospects in Grayson Rodriguez and Gunnar Henderson. Yep. They have multiple other top 100 prospects, and they're going to be getting another one on Sunday with the number one overall pick. They could be a,
1: getting a top five, top 10 prospect Yeah, in, in theory, depending on who they take with that number one overall pick, and we'll, we'll talk to Brad in just a bit. But first, I do want to talk about Jorge Lopez, who did get the All-Star nod. We said... Very well deserving. We knew kind of going in that he was the best chance that they had to have an all-star because he was having an all-star caliber season. One seven zero ERA. Just picked up his seventeenth save of the season last night in Chicago. And again, while he is not a as typical of a closer as some of the other closes around baseball who only get the the ball in the ninth inning, who are only required to protect a three run lead or less he's giving you a little bit extra in terms of innings pitched and his ERA is still incredibly low. He got through that rough patch a few weeks ago and it feels like he's on the other side despite giving up some hard contact during that stretch.
2: Yeah, it seems like he is kind of getting back into the groove. I don't think he's all the way there yet. Yeah. I always think back to, I think it was the Rangers game that he got that first save after the rough stretch and he had a potential home run ball just go foul outside of the foul pole. Yeah. And it seemed like that was kind of the moment where he went, okay, I got it. Because after that went foul, got the final out, was able to save that game. And that seems like where things turned back around mentally for Jorge Lopez. He's back to being the anchor. I mean, he's got a 170 ERA. His whip is still fantastic. And he is the guy at the back end of an Orioles bullpen that has been fantastic. Cool stat. I saw on Twitter today. Going to Inside Edge, the Orioles have the best ERA in baseball in close or late game situations, which is defined as situations, seventh inning or later, where the game is either within one run or the game tying run is at the plate. Best ERA in baseball in those situations. It's not just Jorge Lopez,
1: it's CNL Perez, it's Felix Bautista, right? it's Dylan Tate. This bullpen has been unbelievably lights out through the first several months of the season. I don't think anybody, anybody predicted that the Orioles would have this much success with the guys that they have. And I know there's been a lot of turnover. That's the one position where you could say the Orioles have had a lot of turnover from 2021 to 2022 because you had the additions of C.N.L. Perez, of Felix Bautista, Jorge Lopez was not a full-time reliever last year. He was mostly a starter. So those are three new names that you're having as huge contributors to that bullpen. So you've seen a lot of turnover there and it has paid off very well. And again, this is an area of potential regression. I think there is a possibility that those three guys that I mentioned and others regress a little bit back to where we expected them before the season. But still, it is an accomplishment that they are here right now.
2: And for Jorge Lopez, it's a well-deserved all-star nod. Yeah, and I think it's also a really big credit to coaching as well. We've got to look at that because Jorge Lopez... I mean, he was designated for assignment by the Royals. CNL Perez was a waiver claim. You're finding a lot of these guys that just other teams didn't want and all of a sudden they come to the Orioles and have a lot of success. And I think as a whole in the organization, it should give you a lot of confidence that the Orioles are able to make quality players out of waiver claims. They're able to develop a lot of the top prospects in their system and as we enter the draft on sunday you should be pretty confident that the guys that the orioles are selecting are going into a very high quality player development system what a transition i know right perfect what a segue brad selick
1: who is the orioles director of draft operations joined us here in studio interesting conversation now Like everybody in this front office, he was careful not to give away too much specific information, but we dug just enough to kind of get an idea of what the Orioles are thinking as they go into this draft that begins on Sunday, stretches out over three days over the all-star break. We will have full coverage of the MLB draft on mass and all access and on the mass and all access podcast draft night. We are having a live show here inside the warehouse to have Michael Elias immediately after the number one pick is made live joining Steve Molesky here in the warehouse exciting stuff as the Orioles prepare to add a potential top prospect to their system so as we get closer and closer to the draft definitely check out the draft episodes which we've been rolling out Brandon Mortensen and Tim Leonard who's been producing this podcast as well have been doing some awesome podcasts there Tim has been doing some great podcasts as well and interviews with some of the draft, top draft prospects. Just about everybody who is in consideration for the top number one overall
2: pick, Tim has talked to. Yeah, all of the top five. I mean, I spoke with Elijah Green a few months ago, and I think we've got interviews with Drew Jones's head coach. Tim spoke with Jackson Holiday, Yep, Brooks Lee. I mean, pretty much everybody in the top five. Tamar Johnson Tamar as Johnson. well. Yeah, Everybody in the top five. We've got you covered. Absolutely. So check out that
1: coverage as well. And for now, we're going to kick it over to our interview with Orioles Director of Draft Operations, Brad Selick. We're joined now on the Masson All Access podcast by Brad Selick, who's the Orioles Director of Draft Operations. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here on the couch. Thanks for having me, guys. So you are just a few days away now from the start of the MLB draft. How much sleep are you getting at this time? And are is your eating schedule is your working schedule affected at all by this
0: <laughs> um yeah you know at this stage of the year not a whole lot of sleep goes on yeah. there's a lot going on through your mind and it's kind of typical that way all the way up until after the draft ends
2: so but yeah as far as the food is concerned well fed so Good. we can check that box off <laughs> do you feel any kind of added weight this week knowing that you have the number one overall selection maybe a weight that you know, wasn't there with the number five pick?
0: No, not really. You know, I've we've done this, um, you know, together the last this is our fourth draft together with Mike and Sig, and we're prepared, you know, regardless whether we're picking one, five, um, hopefully a little bit further down the line here with the way the big league club is playing. So just it's more or less a similar process,
1: just kind of different way of how it takes shape. The Orioles have so many high picks in this draft, and particularly because they're lumping in the first couple rounds on day one. feels like a lot of picks happening in a short amount of time. How extra prepped do you have to be, so to speak, to be making these picks in pretty much rapid-fire succession? And these are high-value picks. Yep. Yeah, so we're more or less kind of putting the framework of our board together
0: right now. The most important thing, obviously, is the number one pick. Once that domino falls... We more or less have multiple scenarios that can unfold, kind of take a look at how the board is taking shape, which guys are falling off. And then we kind of mold our strategy based upon who we take at uh, pick number one.
2: So staying with pick number one, in the past, the Orioles have gone pretty college heavy, college bat heavy specifically. And obviously this year, there are some high school bats that are in consideration for that number one overall pick Are there any different challenges to scouting a high school player versus a college player, especially considering there's probably a lot more numbers available for that college guy? Yeah,
0: as far as the valuation process in terms of identifying where these guys kind of fit in, the tools, their makeup, that more or less stays the same. As you mentioned, the big thing is obviously we don't have as much in-game data that we do with the college players in the NCAA level. The one thing I will say that MLB has done a tremendous job with is Getting these guys in programs like Major League Baseball's PDP program identifies them early. We get a lot of metrics assessments from that, and they also have a lot of uh, competition games in Major League Stadium, So we do get some statcast data, even though it is obviously not nearly as in depth as you know it would be from um, the college guys that end up playing there, or the data we get from the college side of things. So. But yeah, I would say in terms of the data, that's the biggest differential. But as far as the evaluation process, our scouts and makeup work that goes into it, it stays relatively the same.
1: I know Michael Elias has talked about the impact that the draft combine has had and how that has kind of helped evaluators get a better sense of who these guys are. Were you personally at the draft combine? I was. I was there with four of our scouts. We also had our medical staff there. It was It's a
0: very uh, beneficial experience. It, it really helps us out in terms of the prep. And we also get to meet with a lot of these guys that we have high interest in. So it's a tremendous uh, tremendous
1: event, and I'm really glad that they you know, put that ball in motion. You can name them if you want, but if you, if you don't want to, just wondering a number about how many draft prospects would you say you've met with or personally talked with? Wow. So going back to last winter through
0: the Combine, and then up until actually this week, it has to be well over 100. Wow. And our staff actually meets with... Other players as well that I don't necessarily meet with. So it is a full uh, blown effort in terms of guys that we talk to via Zoom, in person, you know, at their school, and we take the makeup component extremely seriously.
2: Now, how do you balance kind of the makeup component with what you're seeing in terms of tools and the analytics as well? That's a multi million
0: dollar question right there. <laughs> and that's always what kind of makes it so difficult. And that's a big part of why we bring our scouts in. We have our analysts on site. You know, we have Sig and his team available to talk through that. And there's no really um, right answer on that front. Different clubs are going to approach it different ways, and we just kind of do the best to line, a, line our ducks up in a row and do
1: our best to can to kind of try to figure that out. Now, a college player generally offers, at least from our view, a little bit more safety in terms of a pick just because you have more data, you have several more years of sample size and statistics to go through. Do you think position players – offer that same amount of safety as opposed to pitchers just because of the data that you were able to process? Yeah, I would say in terms of overall draft demographics,
0: especially at the top of the draft, you know, it is uh, extensive work done by our analytics department is position players are much safer at that point in the draft. There is a lot more inherent risk with pitchers. And, um, you know, with that said, we're not necessarily afraid to shy away from pitching. If we feel like there's a good pitcher there at our, at our uh, that's available at our selection, We'll go ahead and pull the trigger. It's just more in terms of assessing risk early on in the draft, we do tend to favor, you know, position players just because of the fact that there is more risk with
2: pitchers. Now, do you feel more comfortable kind of taking shots at pitchers later on in the draft? Is there something in particular you're looking at if you are going after a pitcher? in the later rounds, maybe like a specific pitch that's working, a spin rate kind of thing? Yeah,
0: so we do a very comprehensive process in terms of evaluating pitchers. Our scouting analysts work with our scouts. We also work with our player development pitching coaches and just kind of have a lot of, a few check boxes that we look for delivery wise, arsenal wise. Uh, I like to call it our flavor fastball with certain traits that we're looking for. And also we think we can improve the secondaries. The other component of that is the medical process. We get a lot of medical notes on these guys, pitchers extensively, and we, Obviously, take a look at their health history, innings pitched, etc. So, it a lot goes into it. And actually, I'd probably say in terms of our you know workload and process, it's probably more heavily weighted towards the pitchers. Even though in our past drafts, we haven't necessarily taken them as early on as other clubs might have. But it is a very exhaustive, labor-intensive
1: process, and you know we do a whole lot of work on those guys. So, and certainly the the risk, like you said, is probably greater when it comes to pitchers. Would you say from a talent perspective that the difference between maybe a first round position player and a 10th round position player is greater than that of the difference between a first round pitcher and a 10th round pitcher because you guys have waited so long to take pitchers and it feels like you are confident taking swings on pitchers. Whereas, you know, early on in the draft, unless you have a Steven Strasburg type pitcher Mm -hmm. who stands out you're still adding that kind of risk, but is the talent drop off that stark when it comes to pitchers?
0: You know, speaking with our folks in the analytics department, they're confident in that. The work that they've done. Uh, with that said, in terms of you know selecting pitchers a little bit later on, we think extremely highly of our pitching development program. There's been a ton of guys that we've taken a little bit later, signed as undrafted free agents that have flourished in our system, and we think we have a good thing going there. So we necessarily, um, to your point. If there is a position player, um, we typically like to think at the top of the draft there is a much uh, bigger drop off in comparison to later on in the draft.
2: Now you mentioned kind of you know your kind of fastball when evaluating pitchers. Is there a specific tool that you look at consistently throughout drafts and say okay that's something that we're really looking for in a player? Um,
0: in terms of the tools, you know, it kind of differs depending upon you know the position that you're looking at. Obviously, some guys. You know that might be behind the plate you want obviously them to have a strong arm you know outfielders to have the speed that you're looking for but it really just all kind of depends upon the player and the demographic that you're looking at and then we also have a lot of tools as far as pitchers that we utilize obviously won't go into the secret sauce but <laughs> that's been very helpful in terms of identifying guys who we think we can help improve their
1: arsenal and their deliveries to dig further into that kind of tools question when it comes to p- position players just philosophically i'm curious from your perspective you have the five tools available to you but if all five are equal is there one that you think should take priority over those five whether it's hit tool power speed any one of those five probably have to say the bat man you know if you can hit get on base drive the
0: ball there's always room in the lineup for you somewhere they'll find a spot for you to play so gotcha
2: now with that first overall pick Obviously, you're probably not looking specifically at position, but does a position at that point ever rule anybody out? Or are you just trying to maximize value regardless of where they play? I would say we're looking to maximize
0: value. You know, we want the best player, the best fit for our organization, regardless of what position they play.
1: And in terms of maximizing, the the amount of money at your disposal obviously signing every one of your draft picks last year was a major emphasis and we saw you guys go consistently under slot with a lot of your early picks and it benefited in the long term is signing as many guys as possible or signing the entire draft class as much a priority this year as it was last year it's hard for me to say at this point we kind of have to see how things go i would say that depending
0: upon what we do with our first selection will ultimately kind of shape our focus and strategy you know, um, I think the last couple drafts going under slot allowed us to push some talent and allowed us to sign all the guys from last year, as you mentioned. But you know, we'll kind of see what happens this year on that front.
2: Now that offseason trade with the Marlins where you add pick 67, how much of a wrinkle did that throw into your draft strategy? Not not really a whole lot. Uh,
0: we, we've we more or less have kind of been scouting guys um, all spring, and we have a pick at 81 in the third round. So it just more or less said, okay, now we're going to get another guy that we – you know, kind of fits within that threshold between 42 and 81. So didn't really have a major impact, obviously, on the um, logistics and planning on the scouting season. But obviously
1: having that extra bonus values, you know, could loom large down the road seems like teams are more willing to trade those picks as of late. We saw another trade of a competitive balance round pick. It's obviously rare that any draft kit picks get traded because these are the only ones that can get traded. Have you ever been involved in a trade like that or seen a trade like that in a front office?
0: No, you know what uh, that's pretty much outside of uh, my area, so <laughs> I let kind of Mike and and sig dabble on that front so but yeah it it is pretty interesting to see you know and I'm kind of curious to see how if that trend continues down the road why do you think that trend kind of started just from your evaluation you know it's all in the eye of the beholder i think is the best way to describe it some teams might think that depending upon what's out there this year that there might be a better return for them in terms of minor league talent that they can acquire and other clubs might value the picks more so i think it's all really truly in the eye of the beholder yeah.
2: now how exciting is it just for you personally knowing you know where this farm system is ranked among baseball and having five picks in the top 80 81 here pretty exciting
0: uh you know just kind of looking back at everything I'm pretty happy with how things have turned out. Obviously, you never want to get complacent. We know this is a big draft for us, and we want to make sure that we put
1: our heads together and do the best we can and get the most talent that we possibly can get you out on this. You got the three big days with Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And then you obviously have the undrafted free agent period. But after that, do you feel a little bit like Santa after Christmas, where you're just kind of kicking back and relaxing until next season starts? I wish that was the case. After the
0: sign deadline, we actually have start on next year. So um, on August 1st, I'll be boarding a flight down to Birmingham, Hoover, Alabama oh. for the East Coast Pro. So I'll finally be able to excel probably middle of August. um, And then it's a lot of housework that I need to catch (laughs) up on.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you probably are a little bit bit behind on that. I am. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, sit down with us. I'm sure you've got plenty of interviews lined up for the rest of this week. So uh, we'll, we'll let you get out of here. Brad Selick, Director of Draft Operations. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.